My name is Patricia Kathleen, and this podcast series will contain interviews I conduct with women, female-identified, and non-binary individuals regarding their professional stories and personal narrative as it relates to their perspective. This podcast is designed to hold a space for all individuals to learn from their counterparts, regardless of age, status, or industry. We intend to transparently investigate the evolving global dialogue regarding underrepresented figures in all industries across the USA and abroad. By hosting these stories and conversations, we aim to contribute to the changing platform and representation of these individuals for the future. If you're enjoying this podcast series, be sure to check out our subsequent series called Roundtable with Patricia Kathleen, where we talk with a panel of guests regarding key topics that arise in these individual interviews. You can subscribe to all of our podcast series on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean, as well as our website, patriciacathleen.com. You can also contact me directly via this website or through my media website, wild.agency. That's W-I-L-D-E dot agency. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. This is your host, Patricia, and today I'm sitting down with Dr. Nicola Nice. She is the founder and CEO at Pomp and Whimsy. You can find it at www.pompandwhimsy.com. Welcome, Nicola. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I am so excited to climb in and around Pomp and Whimsy. We were talking earlier off the record about the industry that you are functioning within, and I'm elated because it's one that is currently changing, and um, the dialogue has been really exciting. We will climb into that in just one second. For everyone listening, a quick roadmap of today's podcast. We will first look at Nicola's academic background and early professional life to give us a bird's eye view into her history. Then we will unpack um, her current company and um, like the nuts and bolts, brick and mortar of it all um, within Pomp and Whimsy, namely the who, what, when, where, why, and how. And then we'll turn to the ethos of the company and some of the more philosophical backings of it that um, pertain to what we're looking at. Then we will look at goals that Nicola has for um, the next three years involving maybe scaling, expansion of brand, all of that. And then we will wrap everything up with advice that she has for those of you who are looking to get involved, perhaps emulate some of her work. A quick bio before I start peppering her with questions. Trained as uh, a trained sociologist and brand strategist turned spirits producer, Dr. Nicola Nice has made a career advising Fortune 500 companies on international branding and consumer insights. Over the past 20 years in a career spanning academic research, management consultancy, and global strategy, Nicola watched as the largest liquors producers systematically ignored or misrepresented their female audiences. On a mission to bring women to the forefront in 2015, Nicola turned insight into action. A two-year journey through extensive home infusions and research with her target audience led her to the perfect formula for a uniquely distinct botanical gin liqueur. Now, with her trophy cabinet bursting with awards, Dr. Nice is making good on her promise to revolutionize the spirits industry for women with the marvelous pomp and whimsy. So I'm excited. It's a gin liqueur. Is that right? 
That's right. Yes. Okay. And before we climb into that, I'm really, really excited. This is such a, a fun and evolving industry. And for those of you listening, I kind of speak often about a few different um, areas or industries that have been overlooked um, with gender stigmas attached. And I've always said that wine, alcohol, and spirits are um, one of those. And so I can't wait to speak with you about that. But before we do that, I'm wondering if you can drop us into your academic background and early professional life following academia to give us like this bird's eye view into your past. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so at at school, in high school, I was actually a bit of a math nerd. Um, nice. So I was one of those kids who was groomed from an early age, the once in a decade um, math genius that would go on and study math at the highest level and go on to change the way that we all think about math. Um, and as has been a bit of a theme in my life, um, things that I'm very good at and not necessarily the things that have always been most fulfilling to me. Um, so I ended up actually not studying math at university, but studying human sciences. Uh, so this was a degree which I studied at Oxford in the UK that really studied the human from the inside out. So from the genetic level up to the social and uh, anthropological level. And after my degree, I went on to do a PhD in sociology, uh, specifically sociology of science. And from there, um, I went into um, social policy research. Uh, mm -hmm. So looking at the way that government, specifically the government in the UK, looks and thinks about um, social and ethical issues around science. And I did that for a few years and always interested in the way that different viewpoints come together to, in this case, form policy and the, the, the relative influences that different institutions have over what's considered right and what should, what should be done and what should be put into policy and, and law and what shouldn't. So um, it sounds like such an expansive yeah. like field of research. I'm wondering, my brain goes to most likely things that are incorrect when you talk about like the different factors that are taken in to community and how the uh, in, in regards to science and things of that and how those are in, implemented into law. Uh, were there specific um, like pillars that founded what areas you looked at or was it was it everything? I mean, at this point, you would be studying social media trends as to how they would affect law in the United States. You know, like, were there factors that minute? Right. Or were there very serious, like, axiomatic basises that you came from? Yeah, so that's a good question. So this was um, this was 20 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so social media was not really... Um, no. as obviously as prevalent as it is now. Um, but what we were really looking at was uh, public discourse, um, discourses that was represented in the traditional media at the time. Um, and then more importantly for me, what I was doing was actually observing um, government bodies. So government advisory bodies in the UK around a very specific area of uh, science, which at this time was genetics, genetic testing. Um, my specific thesis focused on the use of genetic testing data um, by insurance companies. So this, this, this very big question, um, which is not a question that can be answered only by science or only by actuarial data or only by 
um, you know, moral analysis of, you know, if you are a carrier of a disease that will manifest in later life, so for example, breast cancer or Huntington's disease or something like that, should an insurance company have access to that information? Given that when you present and you take out your policy, you're, you're healthy, right? And there's not any guarantee about how or when or how severe the condition will be when it does manifest. Um, so it was a big debate in the UK at the time around whether or not a, insurance companies should have access, but more importantly, whether they should be able to use that information in how they underwrite insurance policies. So my specific, uh, because I was uh, taking a sociological approach to this, it, I was less trying to answer that question mm -hmm. <laughs> um, as, as I was trying to understand that there are lots of different ways of framing the answer to that question. Um, and you could frame it from the point of view of patients and patient advocacy. You could frame it from the point of view of um, you know, ethics. Um, you could frame it from the point of view of law. Um, there was a scientific answer to that question. And really what I was focused on is given these different dialogues and these different ways of framing and arguing um, a question, which are the ones that tend to be given more weight when it comes to government decision making around this and are all discourses equal and they, of course the answer to that is no right, right. so um you know that was i've i've always just kind of been fascinated um by by norms and mm -hmm. so this idea of there are things that as society we say we can do or we can't do and some of those are very obvious um, and some of those deserve to be challenged. Um, the reason why I mentioned this is because there's a, some really big norms when it comes to women and drinking. Um, yeah, so I was just going to say, I think we're getting an, an yes. exciting preview to all of this. This right. is awesome. Um, I love that. And I, I too find myself um, on a much less educated level, I'm sure, um, very fascinated with, you know, what is creating norms, what public perception is as opposed to reality and how those mm -hmm. realities are shifted swiftly you know, right. um, within public perception. So you're doing social research and all of that. How did that eventually start to back into pomp and whimsy? Yes. <laughs> you know, it's funny because people always ask me, how did you, how did you start being a sociologist and then end up as a spirits producer? And yes. it seems, it seems from the surface, like it's a complete 180 but actually it's been for me a very logical progression mm -hmm. so I kind of started with this you know explaining to you this idea of there have been things in my life that I'm very good at um, and my life is up till today has been a journey of trying to tease apart what is it that I'm really good at but also what is fulfilling and meaningful to me um, and so you know there's been sort of personal questions around just because I'm good at something and I'm paid a lot to do things does that mean that's the thing I should be doing <laughs> mm -hmm, so it's yeah. um, on this sort of journey to find meaning basically um, in all that I do um, so yeah so I mean I without kind of going into the detail of all the different steps that I took um, but I, I took a journey through research basically so it started off in academic research as I was explaining through my PhD um, I moved from there into social policy research um, I had some time in the commercial world in management consultancy 
understanding consumers from a sort of macro trend point of view and a business point of view. And then I finally settled um, about 15 years ago into the field of consumer insights and market research. So that taking the skills of being a researcher um, from academia into social policy, into the commercial world and into market research, which then ultimately led me into brand strategy, brand positioning and innovation. Um, so once you kind of start follow that thread um, and you start to see how, for me, there's always been the desire to combine my, my academic interests. So in this idea of, uncovering behaviors, values, needs, marrying that to opportunity and specifically commercial opportunity, and then putting those two together into innovation and bringing the creative side of the, into things is where I, that's, that's the place where I get yeah. uh, really energized and excited. I can't do just one of those things. It's when the three come together that it gets really exciting for me. Yeah, and it's it's true, right? You need to have clarity about that. It's never just that an apple makes you happy. It's an apple in an environment at a certain time of day. There's a lot right. of different That's factors right. to adult yeah. happiness. So was there like an aha moment? Were you sitting in a garden somewhere and suddenly it came to you? Were you speaking with a friend? How did the idea, you have these factors, these core tenets that make up, you know, what you're really good at, your zone of genius or whatever you want to refer to it as, but you have these, this, this formula and then how did that suddenly become embodied into, you know, a gin liqueur? How did, yeah. that, did that transition happen like slowly and organically or was it just in one fluid snapshot? Um, a little bit of both. Uh, so I think much like theory, any other theory of evolution, there's gradual progression and then there's big step changes. <laughs> the yeah. moments when you say, oh, you know, now I'm going to pivot and actually do this thing instead of that thing. Um, so kind of going back to the the, the largest part of my career, which has been in consumer insights and brand strategy. So uh, I've been running an agency for the last 13 years out of New York called Think Conservatory, working with Fortune 500 companies to help them better understand their consumer and more importantly, map areas of consumer insight to business opportunity, um, whether that is in uh, repositioning an existing brand or creating an entirely new brand um, or a line extension around trends in the marketplace and unmet consumer needs. And within that, um, I've always specialized in advocating for a female consumer. So you can imagine that as a result of that, I worked a lot in the areas of fashion, um, personal care, beauty, but over the last 10 years or so, increasingly uh, was doing a lot in the areas of spirits. Um, this was partly because it, the cocktail is a great passion of mine and I really enjoy spirits. I enjoy the cocktail culture and scene um, and, you know, looking at sort of trends and, um, and how, because it's, it's changed enormously over the last 10 to 15 years, the industry's really exploded. Um, but um, increasingly I would, because of this sort of, focus and expertise on women and, and women's kind of dynamics and needs. Yeah. I was being brought in to, to, to help my clients, people like Diageo, Bacardi, Campari, to better understand that consumer and, and help position their brands against them and for them, let's say. And one of the things that I always observed was that 
there were a lot of, so going back to this idea of norms, um, there were a lot of norms and stereotypes about women as drinkers that seemed to be very prevalent in the industry. So it was kind of yeah. common law in the industry. And yet when I looked into the data and I actually talked to real people, it didn't seem to ring true with you know, what I was seeing, um, especially with female consumers. So some things that, um, you know, we were talked about this before we went live, but some of these ideas are things around, um, you know, women don't drink spirits, they just drink wine. Mm -hmm. Or women buy, women will drink things that men buy for them. Or women don't, you know, brands that are marketed towards women don't succeed um, mm -hmm. because women find them condescending. Men don't like to buy them and bartenders don't like to serve them. So there's a lot of these sort of um, unwritten rules around women and marketing in the spirits industry. Um, and I mean, you know, there is, there was this very strong belief that you just don't do it, that women will are comfortable buying brands that are actually really for men. Um, and so it would always kind of come down to this question of, I, I, would, I would simply ask women the question, how many spirit brands can you name that are actively targeted towards you as a consumer? Yeah. And the only one in recent history that anyone can name a skinny girl, right? Sure. But when you change the question around and you say, well, how many brands can you name that are actively targeted towards men or even frankly just named after men? <laughs> then the inequality becomes very apparent very quickly. Yeah. And so I kind of came to the conclusion after talking to a lot of women and hearing that, you know, they're actually very engaged with this category. So 70% of, of household spending on liquor is driven by women. And among female drinkers, one in three of us actually prefer spirits and cocktails over other kinds of liquor. And then coupled with that, just observations of cocktailing and cocktail trends, especially in the home, I really think that it's very strongly driven by women as the sort of chief entertainers and mixologists of the home. Yeah. So for, for me, I eventually just reached this conclusion of, is it that it can't be done or is it that it just hasn't been done well? And yeah. I decided that I just felt that it, as a woman, it, it just wasn't being done well. And I figured that there was really one big reason for that. And that's because as women, we haven't been the ones at the wheel in the creation, marketing and selling of hard liquor. So I just, I felt like as much as I could advise my clients on how to do this, it was really going to require women making things for other women to really change this. Absolutely. I agree. And um, it's, it couldn't be at a better time. I think there's a lot of subculture happening as well, you know, as, yeah. um, as I kind of explored this concept with another guest in the wine industry. Um, we were talking about uh, a lot of the different influences that have affected all alcohol sales and different things like that. There's this concept of pre-gaming. There's a lot of different names for it, but essentially it's getting together at someone's house prior to going out to um, the pub or wherever you're going to go out for um, to have a cocktail at home first. It's done a, a huge amount in places um, like Sweden and in the Netherlands and places where um, drinking out is exponentially more expensive for the average income. And it's starting to happen a lot here because of the craft cocktail scene emerging and becoming incredibly more expensive, the t amount of time spent on a cocktail. So I think that there's um, also a changing trend in people making cocktails at home, you know, whereas one would normally, you heard a lot about people turning to 
um, beer or wine at home. Now there's this emergence of people making a great deal more cocktails, even on um, times when they're going out to get a cocktail. And so this idea uh-huh. of people becoming more of their own bartender, you know, and things of That's that right. nature taking off. So it's exciting to kind of look at those trends. Um, what, so did you, you, do you feel like you launched it properly in 2015? And did you launch it alone? Did you have any other co-founders? And did you take any funding or is it bootstrapped? Okay, um, so January 2015, um, I was still working in my agency. Um, and just to give you a little bit of context, I was coming off, I was about a year off of my second maternity leave. So uh, I was just really kind of getting back into um, the swing of working again and going through one of these these crossroads of no, this I've been doing this for a while. I'm 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 good at it. I'm paid a lot of money to do it, but it's not. I'm not finding it fulfilling, and I want to actually be involved in making something that I can see all the way through, and that is enables me to actually connect with other people, um, you know, and 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 create yeah. a, a more of an artistic connection through my work, and not just an intellectual one. And um, something funny happened at the beginning of um, 2015, where with my agency, uh, we had one, I think, four or five very large projects um, in quick succession of each other that were probably going to really um, support the business for much of that year. And I was way too busy as a result of that to be thinking of another business, even though I'd had the the kernel of an idea for a spirit that was more focused around women and so on. And then something happened in the universe at that at that moment. And one by one, every single one of those projects fell through. And that none of it, none of them had anything in common. It wasn't hmm. anything that we did, the agency did, that I did. There was not something you know, it was not some act force of nature. It was just, it, it was just very strange. And one of those moments where you can either sit down and think, what the hell am I going to do? Because I know I had all of this business and all of a sudden it's gone. Or yeah. is this actually the moment? Is this the, the universe telling me you need to do it now? Because the, you, all of a sudden I had time on my hands. Right. And um, so what I did was um, I went to a few of my partners. Uh, so the partner in my agency, um, who you know I'm obviously extremely close with, professionally and personally, and we'd been having these long conversations about wanting to start a new company. And I went to my partners in a um, design agency, who I'd been doing a lot of innovation work with, and had had grown to really respect them um, as marketers and designers and the feeling was mutual and we sat down together and we kind of said to each other we should all just do this so that was kind of the pivotal moment that was in January 2015 and the next thing to do was to start formulating it Uh, so I spent about a month uh, in my kitchen doing a series of infusions uh, to create this gin liqueur um so we'll in a minute we could talk a little bit more about what gin liqueurs are (laughs) yeah and why it was a gin liqueur but essentially uh there was a style of gin that was very popular um 150 years ago uh, in victorian england especially with women called the gin cordial and this was a gin that had been 
lightly sweetened and infused. It was essentially like a ready, ready to drink gin. Um, and women would serve them at all of their social gatherings and they would create their own recipes and they'd pass them on from mother to daughter. So we were inspired by this style and wanted to bring it back. Like seeing, you mentioned the craft cocktail movement, seeing craft spirits really making a comeback and people really embracing old styles of spirits that had sort of been lost through the bottleneck of prohibition and bringing them back. Um, we wanted to bring back this lost style, but more importantly, we wanted to write women back into the history of this spirit um, because so many people didn't know that, I mean, gin used to be called Mother Gin, right? So it's kind of it's there in the name. It's always been about women. Yeah. Um, so we wanted to to retell that story. Uh, so, so a gin cordial um, or a gin liqueur is a gin that's been infused and sweetened, basically. Um, so that was that's how it started in 2015 was creating that formula. How many other founders were there? There were five of us in total. And are there um, still five? Yes, and there, there are five um, who are co-founders in the business. But of those, uh, two work full-time um, in the business, so myself and Vanessa Orion, who is a brand director and kind of manages the creative and consumer side of the business. There are two creative directors, TJ River and Todd Galoppo, who um, create all of our beautiful packaging and artwork and design work, who uh, work on the business maybe one day a week each they still have their own businesses and then the fifth partner nori de la cruz is my partner from my agency and she's still running the agency um, so with funding is it self-funded have you all kind of put into a kitty or is uh, have you gone out and gotten external funding vc angels stuff like that so we've been pretty much bootstrapped up until now. Um, so we we put a lot of our own money in. Um, in the first year, we did a very small friends and family round. And that got us to, I mean, we're three years old. So we launched in January 2017. And um, so three years ago. And we, we launched a, a seed round of fundraising at the end of last year. So we're actually right in the middle of fundraising right now. Okay exciting mm -hmm. um it's a fun time it's a ride fundraising is always <laughs> yes. you know, what changes everything changes day to day um, yeah that's so, a whole other topic i know <laughs> right sure. a whole nother hour i agree yes um i used to think i w i wasn't that interested in funding i mean you know i, I can proffer off the names of like angel vc da, 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 friends and family mm -hmm. but um the more i get into it and the more i interview some of the um actual um, people who, who deal with investment and firms that d do some of the matchmaking and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. I find it to be a, a fantastically interesting industry unto itself. And I, I, really I thought is, that yeah. it was just accountant work, you know? Right, <laughs> right. I think yeah. it's, um, and prob I'm probably interested in accountant work as well. There you have it. I'm, there's nothing I'm not well, interested in. You know but, what I have discovered is that, um, I mean, I don't think it's just my industry. I think any industry the businesses, the brands, the ideas, the products, the services that make it are not necessarily the ones with the best ideas or the best sure. product market fit. They're the ones that are able to successfully raise capital, yeah. um, especially in my industry, because in my industry, um, in order to build a brand up to you know, significant levels of traction, you actually need an awful lot of capital up front. Um, it's, it's not like you can just throw up a website, have a fancy Instagram campaign no. and start selling, right? Yeah, so. right. 
Absolutely. Um, so it was a, it's a whole different skill set that I've had to learn um, is, is the fundraising. And I would say that as of today, I'm always saying to people, I'm probably the most boring dinner guest right now <laughs> because it's, <laughs> this is like 95% of what I talk about yes. is, is pitching and raising. No, it's um, good. It's, it's not boring. And I think it's so useful. It's useful across all industry. If, if you're yeah. not a founder, if you're not an entrepreneur, um, the, the, the core tenets of, of some of it, it goes through to all of business across the globe, not right. just in the economy. And right. Like you mentioned earlier, you know, that you spent a month in the kitchen kind of developing a gin liqueur. I'm wondering if you can kind of walk us through some of that because it feels like that therein lies some of the ethos of the company, you know, this, this spirit of your spirit, um, if you yeah. will, you know, that little pun. Um, but uh, if you can tell us uh, what that education and um, lab work was like and um, what came of it in the end. Yeah. So it's it's funny because I actually came to the formula on maybe my third or fourth try. Um, and that's because going into this, you have to imagine that I wasn't going into this blind. So I, I'd spent the last decade talking to women. I mean, I must have done hundreds of focus groups in lots of different industries, understanding what they were looking for, how they socialize, how they drink, how they want to feel, how they connect to brands. And at the same time, I had a really, a really deep understanding of the, tr the trends in the industry and where flavor profiles were going and, and how things were being used, um, you know, in, in the on trade, as well as, like you said, people starting to make cocktails at home more and, and what that looked like. And I had a very clear idea that this was going to be a gin and I knew that this was going to be an infused gin, a gin liqueur. So from, I was starting from really quite a, a, a dialed in space um, from the beginning. And then from a flavor profile point of view, um, honestly, it, start, it started out uh, with the idea of, imagine if Hendrix and St. Germain had a baby. That was kind of how it started. So I knew that I was looking for, from a gin point of view, I was looking for um, a, a gin base that was a little uh, more floral, a little less bitter, a little mm -hmm. um, less junipery than what we might associate with a classic London dry style of gin. And then from a liqueur point of view, I knew that I wanted something that was a little more floral, um, a little more exotic, um, that would make women feel special um, and, you know, feminine, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, and um, this had come about actually from having conversations with women about what their ideal white spirit was, would be like. So yeah. I would sort of sit down with uh, women from my target audience and have them describe to me what this ideal white spirit would be like. So, you know, how is it made? How does it taste? How are you going to drink it? How, how are you going to feel when you're drinking it? And they started to describe this idea to me of a botanically infused neutral spirit, right? Yeah. So something is, it was almost like they were describing a perfume, but in spirit form. Mm -hmm. And I would say to them, well, you know what you're describing is gin. That's what gin is is botanicals infused into a neutral spirit base and the reaction was was immediately but i don't like gin yeah gin, yeah gin gin tastes like christmas trees gin is my uncle's drink i don't like tonic i've had a bad experience with it yeah and i realized that in this country at least because where i'm from in the uk i think it's a very different market but 
in this country, there's what in psychology we would call cognitive dissonance, um, which is this idea that the description of gin and the way it sounds doesn't, isn't the same as how it tastes. So what mm -hmm. I wanted to do was create what I thought people had in mind when I described the idea of gin to them. Um, and I came up with this, there was this sort of emphasis on a very kind of floral botanical, um, but not, not too sweet and definitely not too fruity and not pink and syrupy and all these things that we've been told as women we like, um, when actually we are, we have way more sophisticated palates than that. Um, and so I, knowing this, knowing that by even biologically, women have more sophisticated palates on average. I knew yeah. I had to create something that was going to be complex enough to really showcase that for them, um, but enjoyable enough that there was not going to be some steep learning curve in order to get there. Absolutely. I mean, it sounds so well thought. And I think you're right about the the attachment. Um, I see it going away a lot more, but, you know, even in my own social um, kind of experiment in my life with people and uh, particularly women, women identified, non-binary individuals, uh, the younger generation probably has less attachment than I'm old. I'm 42. And, um, right. you know, I think that there's a lot of, I don't drink that. It tastes like this, you know, or mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, right. my uncle drank it. I would never drink that. Like th those kinds of things and dispelling those myths um, just within categories of liquor, I think is slowly starting to happen. Um, you guys are in such an exciting stage of, of growth and things like that, that I can't wait to ask you my next question, which is um, over the next three years, let's say three to five, I don't know um, how you guys develop your goals or your business plan projections, but um, both technical and non-technical, do you have, um, you and your co-founders or you personally, do you have goals, sentimental or business logistical um, for scaling, brand expansion, or where you would like to see um, the company, the brand, you can do one or the other with pomp and whimsy. I'm wondering if there is like, your your daydreams of like the next three years what's holding that together mm. what does that look like yeah so there's always the you know people talk about it as the big why right as well as the kind of more tactical um you know what what we're doing next and and how we're going to execute that um so my my big why and the reason why i'm doing this is because i want to bring diversity to this industry and i don't just mean that from the point of view of that's an important thing to do. For me, going back to this idea of I love innovation and I love creativity, I think that you get better innovation um, and more creative ideas the more diverse the approach to the problem. Yeah. And so what I want to do ultimately is um, create an incubator with a fund behind it that is about funding um, diverse founders and diverse audiences with products that will um, change the landscape for the future of this industry in a in a great way like in a way that we will all benefit from with more original and more creative products and brands so pomp and whimsy for me is really just the test case to, sh yeah. to, to show that this really works if you you know this 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 methodology of innovation actually works and very not very cynically, very pointedly, having worked with a lot of the large suppliers over the last 10 years, I've, I've seen how it's not 
it's no longer cost effective for them to do innovation in-house anymore. It's hugely expensive to uh, build a brand from scratch. And especially in our industry, I mean, it can take 10 years to get to 5,000 cases. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people think about Tito's as an overnight success. It was a 20-year overnight success. Like, it's, it takes a long time to brand build. Yeah. So now, increasingly, they are looking to the entrepreneur model to, to see which are the, the, the best emerging brands and ideas. And they will tend to, first of all, take a minority in interest in them, help build and scale them, and then provide the path to exit. So I'm very clear that I know that a lot of the large producers have this big hole in their portfolio. They have, they, they admit they, they don't know how to talk to women. They've admitted that. Yeah. And at the same time have admitted that they want to invest in changing that. Um, and the really the only way to do that is to invest more in, in female founders um, because part of their issue is that going back to the beginning, they don't have women behind the wheel. Um, so, yeah. so ultimately I would like to, to, to sell pomp and whimsy to a larger company that can really build it and scale it and operationalize it and take it into the mainstream and use the proceeds from that to kickstart this incubator. Um, I love it. And I think it's so important to keep that, you know, for people um, who have this goal um, for this podcast series audience, you know, the basis, I hope everyone's listening, but for female and female identified non-binary individuals, you know, especially the ones starting out in entrepreneurship and things like that, there's a life cycle to it. And the other half is what you've just described, which is becoming part of this, you know, funding and incubation um, methods so that we can have other um, represented companies and entrepreneurship rising up through those ranks as well. I think it's such a crucial part of the ecosystem um, for getting more yeah. representation and gender equality at the table um, across all industries. Absolutely. So I love that you're doing that. I think it's it's such a dream. Um, I think it's a goal of mine as well to become part of the solution on that aspect as I've represented the, the earlier part of the aspect of the young entrepreneurial woman and things of that nature. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, we're, we're climbing to being into out of time and I'm, I'm bummed out because there's so many more things I want to ask you, but I'm going to wrap up today with asking you um, what's one of our, our audience's favorite questions um, and I delight in it as well. And I'm curious if you were in, um, well, you're in New York, so if you were in Central Park tomorrow and the beautiful park near a pond there that I love and a woman or a, a female identified non-binary individual walked up to you and said, Listen, um, I've had this history in academia. It's been fabulous. I've been, you know, over the pond in um, England for a bit, and I'm here now, and I'm getting ready to, um, me and a few of my former colleagues and buddies are getting ready to start this um, this uh, spirits liqueur thing, and I'm, I'm just curious, what are the top three pieces of advice you would give that individual knowing what you know now? Mm, yeah, such a big question. Um, well, I mean, if, if, if someone was asking the first question, which is, you know, I've, I've been in academia and now I'm thinking of launching something, um, and I'm kind of at this crossroads and should I do it or shouldn't I do it? Because I I think a lot of women people are in that space, right? Um, and, um, and I think that this has been a theme throughout this interview, but for me, this idea of find where your skill and your expertise marry with your passion. Um, so, you know, don't start something that you're passionate about, but you have absolutely no skills or knowledge or experience there because that's going to be ex- 
a very high learning curve for you and extremely risky. But equally, don't just keep doing something just because you're good at it and people pay you to do it. If you're not passionate about it, then there's that there's no there's no future. Where's it where's it all going? So I think that would be, you know, in retrospect, going back and kind of understanding that 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 can help guide the pathway and that there's no wrong decision if you keep those two things in mind but on the second question just very cynically if someone came to me and said I want to start a gin liqueur company or a gin company or any kind of spirit company I would say to them make sure you've got a ton of money or access to raising a ton of money because there's no point even attempting it um, if you don't have that capital plan yeah. and I wish I had I wish someone had had a slightly franker conversation with me about just how much capital it was going to take I mean I'm in it to win it now right and it's yeah. you know we're going to get there and I'm I'm extremely stubborn and extremely committed and and, all, and, and so on but if someone had said to me back in the days when I was really just selling my consulting and they'd said no you need I'm just going to put a number on it and say to get to to get to a million in revenues, let's just say you're probably going to need about four million in capital if you want to get into this industry. And then once you hit that sort of million in revenues, that tends to be the turning point where things start to happen for you. But I mean, that's a huge amount of investment up front. And I mean, I certainly didn't have that or have access to that kind of money back then um, and um, it's been the it's been the biggest thing um, that is been the biggest challenge that is unrelated to the business itself fundraising yes um, and what is your final what is your final piece of advice that you would give so we have find the intersection of skill and expertise and passion and start your work there and um, get kind of a, a quick education or find someone who does regarding fundraising and an awareness of what's going to be required. And then your final piece. Um, so I get, I do get asked a lot, and, and this is probably a related question, you know, like what's the best careers advice that you've had? So if it was just a more general um, piece of advice, I would, um, and I think it sort of relates very much to the first thing I said is just really owning your future um and um knowing that it's not going to be a job or another company or another person that's going to make you successful you are very much in the driving seat and you have choices always um and i think that just knowing that there are options i think it can be easy to feel locked into things um and knowing that um you know putting yourself out there and taking a risk will always pay off if it's you the one you're the one who knows why you're doing it yeah um, absolutely I think that's it's it's so good and it's true it's you know it when we go to think about advice I think it's easy to start on a, a common theme and just stay on it you know and this yeah. is the other I think the other side of um, that you've got your technical fundraising You've got um, your genius of understanding the intersection between your skill and expertise and passion and mm-hmm. coming from that place. And then the other part of it is, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think that being brave and mm-hmm. um, owning your own, you know, um, really 
captaining your own ship is mm-hmm. is crucial and knowing that um, you can count on yourself, right? Right, right. So I agree with um, all of those things. We are out of time and I'm bummed out, but um, I'm going to... I'm going to circle back around and see if Dr. Nice can talk to us in a year because you're in such an exciting place. Mm-hmm. Fundraising is so fun. And while it's stressful right. and busy and it's a PhD in a whole nother category that you may have never even knew you were going to obtain, <laughs> right. it's, um, it's still, it's a place where a lot of change happens and a lot right. of movement is going on and, and buzzwords. So for everyone listening, um, you can, again, you can look into pomp and whimsy um, and I'm assuming kind of climb further into or contact uh, Dr. Nicola Nice at www.pompandwhimsy.com. And um, I just want to say thank you so much for um, taking the time today and, and explaining your history and um, just your, your fascinating career story is, is awesome and climbing in and out of Pomp and Whimsy. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for asking me those questions. Absolutely. And for everyone listening, thank you for giving us your time today. And until we talk again next time, remember to always bet on yourself. Sunshine.